Amen. Please be seated. This morning, this Easter Sunday morning, certainly it is true every Sunday is about the resurrection of Christ. We cannot worship God if it were not for Jesus rising again. But in particular this morning, if you cannot get excited about this, please check your pulse. This is Resurrection Day. This is the day we, in the church calendar, focus on this event in history that means our redemption. It could hardly be more important than what we look at today. So I want to speak to you from Acts chapter 4, but before we read Acts 4, I want you to see the basis for Acts 4 and what happens there in Matthew 28. So turn with me in your Bibles first to Matthew 28. I'll read the first 10 verses. And then connected, I'll I'll make that connection for you, is Acts chapter 4. What happens with the disciples after Jesus rises again and ascends into heaven. And we'll see the impact of the resurrection and how it connects with us today. First, though, hear God's word, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. This is God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Hear now as I read. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. After this, Jesus spends over a month with the disciples, teaching and readying them for their work as apostles. So after 40 days, Jesus then ascends into heaven and he commissions his disciples to preach the gospel to all the world. He then sends his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 to come upon his people with power so that they might be able to bring this message to the world. No more denying Jesus to a servant girl, these disciples. No more of that. No more falling asleep in the garden for these disciples. They're now apostles. Uh, No more arguing over who would be first. Uh, Peter, who was afraid to be associated with Jesus just a short time before this, becomes one of the boldest preachers of the gospel the church has ever seen, certainly in this early time frame. Peter at the temple gate then, on one occasion, the temple gate, the place where Jesus was persecuted and prosecuted and eventually uh, was led through there to die, at that same place, not that long after, Jesus Or Peter goes there and he preaches and teaches and he heals a lame man and catches the gaze of the Sadducees who were anti-supernatural, the liberals of their day. And they were, the text says, as we will see, annoyed. Let's hear now God's word and 
find out what happens not too long after Jesus ascends and see how ready resurrection power is for the church. Acts 4, 1 through 12 on your insert. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Referring to the healing of the crippled man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we see the resurrection of Jesus as a testimony, certainly to the resurrection of human beings. We take comfort in the fact that our God became man died for our sins, and was resurrected on the third day. The grave could not hold him. He lives, and he sits today at the right hand of you, our Father in heaven, gathering his people to himself. Together, as we gather on this Easter Sunday, O Lord, as we do each Sunday, to worship our risen Savior, I pray that you would give us a new boldness about who our Savior is pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every, every time we have a funeral and every time we celebrate Easter, we read these two questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, 1 and 45. And if you want to know a very simple way of explaining to people the importance of the resurrection, I think that question 45 that we read together gives you exactly those bullet points you can share. It embodies what the scripture teaches as a whole about the resurrection. You know, the first important feature of the resurrection is that as Jesus overcomes death, it verifies that his righteousness is sealed to us. God accepts his sacrifice by raising him again. That's of utmost importance to our salvation. No resurrection, no forgiveness of sins, period. But there's something else you notice. The second reason given in the question 
By his power, we are resurrected to new life. You know, it's not that Jesus rose again and someday will be raised again. No, it's Jesus is raised again and when the Spirit of God gives you faith in Christ, you are raised to new life right then. I mean, new life starts for the believer right then. It's not just something future. Praise God for future. But right now, we're raised to new life. You're resurrected because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Anything less about yourself is not true. It's just fooling yourself. You were dead. But God in his grace made you alive together with Christ. He's raised you to new life because of the resurrection of Christ. But the third reason why the resurrection is so important is that it is the prototype for your resurrection. Every one of you has dealt with death in your life, maybe recently. And you know when you go and see memorial stones and you think back that that person isn't just a memory to you, especially if they're in Christ, you'll see them again. And that's the promise we have in the prototype of Christ himself rising again and his resurrection body is something like what ours will be like. That is as real as can be. It's not fantasy. And those are the bullet points, you might say, of why the resurrection is so important. Well, this truth, that kernel, that is the heart of Christianity right there. The resurrection is not just a metaphor for new life or spring has sprung. It's not about being reborn as such. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart of Christianity. Take the resurrection out, you no longer have Christianity. It's just another social gathering with religious talk. The resurrection is indeed the center of it. And this sermon will not be, will not be an extended uh, apologetic for the truth of the history of the resurrection. It is certainly true, and there's plenty of rational explanation. 500 people witnessed this. Uh, of the people that we have been studying and have record of who did witness it, there's a complete about face in their life. I mean, total change in who they were before and after the resurrection. And other martyrs die but none other than Christ die with such exponential growth after his death because he rises again and everybody who follows knows it. I admit straight up, this message is not for skeptics who want something proved to them. There's quite enough rational proof. Instead, this message, as we focus upon Acts chapter 4 and what happens, it's for believers who are here to worship the risen Christ this Easter Sunday morning. And for the believer, who could ever get enough about the resurrection? Can you? We're familiar with the account that I read there first in Matthew 28. But let's look now at Acts chapter 4. The days that came after Jesus ascended into heaven, gave his great commission, sent his Holy Spirit to begin gathering to his church, to his people. We'll see the resurrection power at work immediately as Jesus takes his right hand at the throne of God. We'll see Peter. Uh, his, in his, and his formerly, you might say, sniveling band of disciples, these cowardly, shaky followers, now made bold ambassadors for Christ. They were once timid learners, nervous about what the future held. Now we see them as prophets of God, apostles, sanctioned spokesmen for God. No longer infighting, no longer hard-hearted, denying or cowardly, but now willing to die for what they have seen, because they now know that death has no power over them in Christ. In Acts 4, in particular, we'll see, and I hope it encourages us as well, that the resurrection of Christ provides a unique qualification necessary to truly be our Savior and the power necessary to gather people to himself. Let's look at verse 1, 2, and 3 first. As you see 
alluded to here, God the Father raising Christ as, an authentic, as a way of authenticating the gospel message Jesus had been preaching in the Bible long forecasted. Verse 1, and, and as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John talking after this cripple had been healed, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Verse 2, only one other time in Scripture is this exact word used for annoyed. Maybe you remember, uh, Paul was preaching and this girl who was demon-possessed kept taunting him while he was preaching and he got tired of it. And It says in the text, Paul growing annoyed cast out the spirit. Well, here's another use of annoyed. Greatly annoyed, the Sadducees were listening to them talk about what they were talking about. Greatly annoyed, why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They had them arrested as a result. Please notice the special wording to describe what Peter and John were preaching. They were teaching the people and proclaiming, and this is what they're proclaiming, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There's many ways you can capture the gospel's whole message, but this is certainly one of them. Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. They know what this means, that if Jesus is really raised again, that all the teaching he did before is authenticated, it's verified, it's, it's credible now, and they don't like any of that. You know, when you think of great teachers in history, and you all know those teachers, maybe in some field of study you've done, there's maybe one person who really stands out as being the father of this or that teaching, or the person who's most known, Plato, for a platonic thought and how it has such a wide-ranging impact. And even today's thinkers, uh, David Hume is known for not much about his life, but his skepticism, his rational skepticism is certainly something that comes to mind if you study Hume at all. Karl Marx, what do you know about him? You probably know communism is tied to him and that ideology and that philosophy. People, teachers associated with what they teach, for sure. Uh, what is Darwin known for? His theory of evolution. And that's what he's known. You don't know much else about him, most likely. But in the case of Jesus, it is his teaching. But what makes his teaching credible and what makes him so unlike anyone else who's associated with a philosophy is that he himself rises again from the dead defeating death, man's ultimate enemy, thereby giving credibility to all of what he says. You have to listen to someone who comes out of the grave. And this is what Jesus provides. His resurrection then qualifies the message of the gospel that Jesus preached. What, what was the message of the gospel Jesus preached? Well, back in Mark, a book we're studying through, back in the first chapter, it described Jesus starting his ministry, and it says in Mark 1.14, after John the Baptist, that is, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, so it's a message from God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So it has to do with the extension of the kingdom of God. Repent, he says, and believe in the gospel. Repent means to recognize sin and turn, turn unto Christ. That's the gospel. And that's the message he preaches, and that's the very message that is authenticated by Jesus rising again. Really, this simply, at the end of every one of our lives, we are going to stand before God, a just and holy God, to be judged. We will be judged either on the basis of our own righteousness or lack of it, or the righteousness of another. It's that simple. There's not a plan C or B or D or E. It's just this is what will happen for us. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, 
of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for his people. He has done for us what could not possibly be done by ourselves. But not only has he lived this life of perfect obedience, he then offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God in our behalf. So when Jesus gives himself as the payment and God raises him, it's God saying, I accept the sacrifice and we're saved. We're justified because of it. We could not be otherwise. We're still in our sins if he has not been raised. Look at verse 10 in our text because it refers to this God raising Jesus from the dead, this authenticating of the message of Jesus. Verse 10 in Acts 4, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and here's a key phrase, whom God raised from the dead, a statement of God's authenticating, by him this man is standing before you well. So much commerce is done today on the internet. Uh, people, I'm probably, everyone here has probably bought something online, I'm sure. What do you do? Well, once you pick what you want, you have to go to the payment. And the, the button comes up, payment. And you know, what do you got to do to get to that point? You got to plug in your credit card information, PayPal, or some other connection to money somewhere. And you press the payment button and you hope it takes it. Kind of a little delay. Hey, I wonder if I do have money over there or what's happened. And then, you know, the, if you have a, a PC, that hourglass keeps turning and turning and turning. Like, oh, oh, oh. Boom, it comes up, payment accepted. That was was close. When Jesus goes to the cross, he makes the payment for your sins. All of your sins. Every one of them. Even ones you have not yet committed. Jesus pays for them on the cross. But it means nothing. When the payment is made, if the payment is not accepted... And the only way we know it's accepted is because on the third day, he rose again. Payment accepted. God raising Jesus authenticates the gospel. Your believing God raised Jesus from the dead is a necessary part of the gospel we believe. This is not new to the apostles. In fact, earlier in chapter 2, when Peter gives the first of three sermons in the first four chapters of Acts, He's talking about God looking ahead to the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament. It says in Acts 2.31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, he says to the Jews there listening. Then listen to what he says in Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God accepts Jesus' sacrifice, sits him at his right hand, and then empowers him with the ability to give the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes forth from the Father and the Son to the church to empower the church for the growth of the church. All of this is proof of Jesus' sacrifice being accepted by God on our behalf. But it's not just something that authenticates the gospel itself, and it does, but it's also very personal. When Paul says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
God the Father raising Christ from the dead authenticates the gospel. But let's remember the big picture that the resurrection of Christ itself provides the unique qualification necessary for Jesus to truly be our Savior. And here's the key, and the power necessary to gather his people to himself. Let's consider that a little further. Looking at verse 1 and 2 again, we see that despite the opposition that comes upon the apostles, despite the opposition that will confront the church of Jesus Christ, the risen Christ will continue to gather people to himself through the ministry of his word and his spirit. His word goes forth and he has the spirit empowering, working with the word, and he continues to grow his people. This never stops. No matter what it may look like immediately, this is what God is about doing. Now, the scene in Jerusalem was a common one wherever Christianity boldly proclaims Christ. Especially in the first 300 years of the church's existence, we can see this. The response to unbelief is exactly like you see it here with Peter and John and the Sadducees and all the rulers. It was confronted and even persecuted. Look at verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody. There's this, uh, this mixture of things going on. They're trying to use the basis of Jesus uh, healing the cripple as some a reason for arresting, but we know uh, they were really annoyed by what he was saying. And you can understand from the Sadducees' perspective and those of the chief priest's family why they didn't like this. Because there is no need for a chief priest anymore when the great high priest does the work on the cross. Their job's over. They're done. Money train over for these guys. And the Sadducees don't like the idea that someone is proclaiming resurrection from the dead. They know that this is the word about Christ. They have no way to disprove it, so we'll just arrest anybody who says it. For them, they're the the smart ones. They're the intelligentsia. And so people are dependent upon them. If there's no resurrection, then what do you you look for? We'll look for the smart people to tell us how to get out of this. I mean, it happens the same way today. No resurrection, so let's go to the university, and they'll tell us how. Go to the philosopher, they'll tell us how. They have no answers, but it keeps us beholden to them so long as there's no resurrection. So the Sadducees do not like this message of the resurrection of Christ. And so they try to subdue it. And every time someone tries to subdue the message of the gospel, it always, always, always backfires. And that's what happens. Look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, ancient attendance counts did not include women and children. Low estimates for the number of Christians, just weeks, maybe months after Jesus' resurrection, it's about 20,000 people. Now, Jerusalem's normal, non-Passover population was no more than 60 or 70,000 people in 33 AD. Opposition to Christ will not stop Jesus from keeping his promise to build his church. One might say a chief catalyst for the building of the church is persecution. And persecution will come in some form when you preach the gospel. You know, it's very vivid to us today uh, when you drive around in our manicured lawns when there's a block of grass that has a lot of dandelions on it. Now, somewhere people really like dandelions. But generally, we don't like them. We see them as some uh, form of, of laziness on the part of us who own those lawns. I say us. 
uh, because there they are. Well, what do you do to get rid of those dandelions? Well, I'll tell you what happens. If you do not kill them when they're yellow, it's over. I mean, it's over. Just give up. Because what do you do then? They go to seed. And either All number of things can happen. Your kids will make a bouquet of them and bring them to you. And on route, a whole bunch of seeds to spread, spread out and more are multiplied. You could try to mow them. Guess what happens when you do that? It just dispels them everywhere else as well. You're just a cloud of these different things floating around. Uh, you could uh, ignore them. Guess what happens then? The wind takes them and carries them to your neighbor's yard who really loves that. Okay. When Jesus rose again from the dead, it was over in so far as stopping him. Could not be stopped. And every effort to persecute or subdue or to put it down only made it multiply more. Look at verse 8 and see what happens. And this is an amazing text, brothers and sisters. If you know the life of Peter, we all want to be compared to Paul, but the truth is we're much more like Peter. And Peter struggled and struggled and struggled all the way to just, I don't know, a month before this time, a little, two months most. He goes from denying Jesus to a servant girl to standing in the place that could have guaranteed his death. And listen to what he says when confronted. Let's think of old Peter for a moment. It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and people and elders, I'm so sorry to have offended you talking about Jesus. I know talking about Jesus puts off your religions, and we want everyone to coexist and put bumper stickers that say the same thing in our cars and everybody get along peace. And we want to just really let everyone live, and it's all good, and it's meaningless if that's true. But that's not what Peter says. The same Peter who used to be, a, be afraid of dying is no longer afraid of dying. And that's a testimony to what it says in verse 8. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, and by the way, not just to you, to all of you of Israel as well, let it be known that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And here it comes. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the thing, the living temple God is building. And here it is again, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Somewhere some, in some church today, someone is explaining away this passage somehow. So let me tell you what it means in Greek. In Greek, it means, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what it means in the Greek too. The occasion of persecution and opposition was the impetus for the word of the gospel going forth. Because they detained Peter and John, they gained a stage, Peter and John did, to proclaim the gospel. They could be no more explicit than what we see in these words, especially verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. Despite opposition, the risen Christ will continue to gather people to himself through the ministry 
of his word. But let's not forget the big picture here, that the resurrection of Christ itself provides the unique qualification necessary for Jesus to truly be our Savior. And here's the key, as we see now, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in Peter, and also provides the power to gather people to himself. And this is what he continues to do. Let's look, finally, at verse 8, in this simple verse with revelation that is so uh, encouraging and emboldening for us as we see how the resurrection emboldens us to be witnesses for Christ through the ministry of his word and spirit. Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. I mentioned to you, and I'll say it again, this is Peter's third sermon now in the book of Acts. Three sermons already in just the first four chapters. He could not even fess up to knowing Jesus to a servant girl before, and now he's saying in his third sermon, rulers and people and elders, let me tell you something. We see the impact that the resurrection made on Peter. He was this tough, rough fisherman. Fishing was daunting. It took courage. He was not scared of too many things, but when it came to death, he was scared, as everyone ought to be outside of Christ. It is the most daunting of all enemies. No one can ever escape it, and it stings to the core of our souls apart from Christ. Not scared of too many things, but scared of death was Peter. He denied Jesus three times because he was scared of what would happen to him. After the resurrection, however, he can't stop telling people about Jesus in the most dangerous places to do it. In verse 9, he says, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known. He's He's not timid in any way. He even knows what the real reason is for their being arrested. It's not about the crippled man. It's about what they've been doing and teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That was the problem. And he goes to the heart of it, and he says, Well, the person who actually healed the guy, by the way, is Jesus of Nazareth, who, by the way, you crucified. But God raised him from the dead. You know, later on in the passage in Acts 4, I won't have you turn there, but just listen to how it culminates. The church grows in great unity. As the gospel is preached faithfully and the resurrection proclaimed, the church will grow at least in unity, but God often gives great expansion in numbers when it's preached consistently and carefully and faithfully like we see in this first century church. And so a description of the church in those days is quite amazing. For its time frame, it was typified by this unity where people in varying socioeconomic stratuses were sharing with one another. And it was just, there's such unity that it was real powerful for the church. Many ways unity can look, but here it looks this way. In Acts 4.32, listen to what it says. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And why were they unified? They were unified under the risen Christ. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And here's a key verse, Acts 4.33, the power of the resurrection. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I've told you many times I could not write a good book on church growth. It'd be maybe a page long tops. But one of them would be one of the keys to church growth, whatever growth is defined by for you. The way God describes it here, Great power, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Because it's all about Christ. And this is what God uses to grow his church. 
It's not an overstatement to say that the resurrection of Christ was the event that pushed Christianity over the top, so to speak. Now, the power of the message of Christ lies with his resurrection, and those early followers understood that. In each subsequent generation, especially the first 300 years of the church, understood it too. You know, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is always in support of the will of God and the work of the Son. I want you to think about this. It says in verse 8, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he said to them, rulers and peoples and el- of, the, the, of the people and elders. The Holy Spirit has several ministries in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you faith in Christ, regenerates you from life, uh, from death to life. The Holy Spirit, upon giving you faith and life in Christ, indwells you and seals you forever. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit when he indwells you. This is also called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, through his indwelling ministry, also gives you spiritual sight so that you can see where you could not before. So, in addition to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, in addition to these, he also fills us to do special tasks at certain times. This is what Peter is, what's happening to Peter. Filled with the Holy Spirit, a special word must come forth now, and he gives it. I'm sure, my dear brothers and sisters, if we would think about it, meditate it, upon it, study the resurrection of Jesus, we would experience the Holy Spirit's emboldening power and be far more ready to give witness to Christ. God always works through the Spirit in combination with his word to give us spiritual growth and courage to be witnesses. I don't know about you, but from time to time, I get into certain subjects and I read and study them. I know one person, he gets excited about the parks in Kansas City, he writes about it, talks about it, enjoys tea, and now it's tea versus coffee. Uh, For me, last year, you remember when I was preaching during the time I was rehabbing my knee, and I started reading books about Mount Everest because it got me pumped up to do the physical therapy because I'm going to climb a mountain after, maybe a couple thousand feet as opposed to 29, but it still got me pumped. So I'd read about it and read about it. If you ask me at that time frame, I could tell you all sorts of trivia about it. It was right there in the tip of my brain. Now, there's also, uh, recently, we're coming up on the 100th year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. I bet you we've got a bunch of Titanic buffs right here probably saw the display when it came, when the movie came out 15 years ago. You went and saw it. You're going to go see it in 3D now because it wasn't enough the first time. And so the Titanic's on your mind. I bet you there's a lot of experts on the Titanic right here. A lot of Wikipedia hits this week, I guarantee, on the Titanic. I won't have you raise your hand, but I bet you a lot of people know a lot about the Titanic right now. I know. I fall into this category often about things. Wouldn't it be just so much greater if we were more into God's Word Wouldn't it be so much greater if we were constantly studying the resurrection and all that it means? The resurrection emboldens us to be witnesses for Christ through the ministry of his word and his spirit. This is how he works. As his word goes forth, the word of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the spirit of God weds together with the word in a mysterious way and it brings people to Christ. Beloved brothers and sisters, we can see once again from this wonderful event recorded in the book of Acts, the resurrection of Christ, it provides the unique qualification necessary to truly be our Savior, for Christ to be our Savior. And it also provides, as we've seen here in the life of Peter, and you can see it in your own life, in the life of the church, 
It also provides the power necessary to gather people to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you did not leave Christ in the grave, nor did you abandon his soul to Hades, but you raised him again. And now that he is raised again, we are redeemed. We have new life. Father, we have seen the power of the resurrection, the same power used to raise Jesus from the dead at work in your church as Christ fulfills his promise to build it. I pray that you would give us a sensitivity, a a hunger for, a passion for, zealousness for Jesus and his gospel and his uh, being risen again. I pray that this would embolden us in this age of pluralism where it just has somehow impressed itself upon the church that we're supposed to be quiet about this. Please cause us to to repent of that silence and with great love and care share with the world our risen Savior. For whether the world knows it or not, he is who they need. Father, help us to love people enough to boldly share, as Peter shared, Jesus, our risen Savior. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.